0: Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in October of 2018.
1: Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. I'm stockpiling antibiotics for the apocalypse, even as I wait the blossoming of paper whites on the windowsill in the kitchen. So writes Anne Lamott in her new book, Almost Everything Notes on Hope. She says that despair and uncertainty surround us in the news, in our families, and in ourselves. But even when life is at its bleakest, when we are, she puts it, doomed, stunned, exhausted, and over-caffeinated, the seeds of rejuvenation are at hand. And she also says all truth is paradox. So this turns out to be a good reason for hope. If you arrive at a place that's miserable, it, it will change. Anne Lamotte is an author of uh, several uh, best-selling books. And the latest, as I mentioned, just out, Almost Everything Notes on Hope. Anne Lamotte, pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah. Thank you.
2: Thank you. So glad to be there. We were just in Utah a few months ago and loved it, loved it, loved it.
1: Uh, up in Park City, I believe. Yes. Yeah. I've been
2: there a couple of times. It's just it's just some God's own country.
1: Yeah, yeah beautiful. You you live in uh, California, Bay Area? I do.
2: I live in yeah. the San Francisco Bay Area, yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, so you write uh, in the book that this is the kind of book you wish your father had written, uh, passing on uh, the truth that he knew to to you, I guess
2: yeah well, no, it's not the stuff you passed on to me, but it was the stuff I wanted to share with my nine year old grandson and my fifteen year old niece that were, you know it was all like post post women's movement and post post all the movements and post post sixties and whatnot It was stuff that I was almost positive about, such as that everybody's kind of crazy and that it's not helpful to compare your insides to their outsides. Uh-oh, there was just a beep on the phone. But anyway, um, no, it's everything I knew that I thought might be helpful and give the younger people in my family hope and direction. Uh,
1: you're, you write very lovingly about the young people. Your grandson especially, I want to bring this up. You uh, you say uh, your grandson, I think, lives with you at least part, part of the time, right? Half-time, uh, yeah. Half-time. Sleeps just down the hall, you say. Wakes up a uh-huh. lot of mornings, he says, you know, this could be the best day ever. <laughs> and uh, other times in the middle of the night, he calls out, Nana, will you ever get sick and die? And you yeah. say, that's, that's, that's all of us, right?
2: I said, that's all. That's pretty much says it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, so this is, uh, this is the tr- almost everything that you know, I guess. Note- yep. on- notes on hope. You've written on grace and prayer and faith. Hope, I think uh, we can all agree, especially needed in these times.
2: Well, you know, I've been on the road for eight days in eight different cities, and the people in my audiences are really just stricken with with um, despair and fear and anger, and it's different than when I've been on the road before. It's definitely different, and I wrote this book partly because I think I'm kind of a spiritual EMT, and I just try to help people see that what is equally true as the uh, darkness is the light and the beauty and the the miracle of people's loyalty and caregiving. You know, uh, Mr. Rogers' mother always said after a tragedy, when he would be really confused as a child, she'd say, look to the helpers. And um, and so I just remind people of stuff like that, and to look up instead of to be staring down at the ground. My pastor always says that you can trap bees in a mason jar by... um, just putting a little honey or sweet on the very bottom, you don't even need a lid because they never look up. So I just say to everybody, "Look up, look up, look up.
1: Mm. you say all uh, all truth is paradox, right and so that's a that's a good thing. If you're feeling that despair there's there's another side to this.
2: There is. There's an equal side to all this. There's an equal side to really almost everything that we think we know and we love to be right and we're positive that our opinions and thoughts are right or otherwise we'd have different thoughts and opinions and then those ones would be right. But so, you know, I mean, I use the image of um, light that we grew up thinking that light light was uh, waves, light waves when in the 50s. And then... Um, Uh, Then it turned out light was particles. Then scientists could prove that um, light is both particles and waves, and then they could prove that it's both at the same time, and then they could prove just when you got used to that or were willing to semi-believe it, that looking at the light changes it. So everything we think we know is a lot more interesting and complex than we give it credit for.
1: You have a, a whole chapter on hate, um, it's titled "Don't Let Them uh, Get You to Hate Them." Um, you, <laughs> you say even my Buddhist friends have been feeling despair, and when they go bad, you know the end is nigh, which is uh, <laughs> certainly certainly true. Um, I, I want to I want to talk a bit about this because I think uh, this this divide this it's a political divide it's a social divide is is just getting, seems to get worse and worse. Yeah. Um, you say, uh, you, a friend of yours, at the end of his drinking, he says he was deteriorating faster than he could lower his standards. You say this yeah. began happening to you with hate.
2: Yeah, well, it did. For the first year after the election, as a um, Democrat, it was very, very hard. And, you know, it just had seemed like a shoe in. I mean, it just, I just—I don't think that there was a 10% belief that Hillary would lose. And I really love Hillary, despite anything that anyone might say about her. And um, and after the election, I just kind of got into it with you know this feeling of what are we, the fear. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? And the and the um, and the uh, disbelief and the whatnot. And then about a year ago. I remembered something we say in recovery, because I've been sober 32 years, and that was that the willingness comes from the pain. And I finally felt just sick enough of feeling um, sort of disoriented and and toxic that I started to do some work on that, on, on what I could control, which was, you know, if you got a problem, go look in the mirror, and I saw that I was contributing to the craziness, and then my pastor gave a um, sermon that was based on this um, beautiful quote of Booker T. Washington, that's in the book, but I don't have it in front of me. I mean, I don't have the quote in front of me, And uh, that Martin Luther King used, and it was basically, don't let them get you to hate them, because then you're a hater, and you're lost, and you're going to be, uh, you're going to feel horrible and not be able to contribute from a place of love and faith and uh, confidence in life. And so I just started to do some work on reducing the viral load of my... um, my own hatred. And it really was wonder. It's really been wonderful.
1: Uh, that Booker T. Washington quote, he said, uh, I shall allow no man to belittle my soul by making him me hate him. Right. Which is right. A, a profound quote. Uh, yeah. So you have some, uh, I think, profound insights here about, about hatred. I think it creeps up on people. <laughs> you don't realize yeah. you're in that space and, until maybe you, you, you have a recognition. Um, you said we're actually... More like the zombies in *The Night of Living Dead*, because you say we're fused with people and we hate them. We're not yeah, us we're, anymore.
2: Yeah. Can you read the next sentence too about how we're mm. all parts of of the um, movie? Uh,
1: yeah, we, we become like them. They, them, are really not uh, doing anything to us. To some extent, I'm doing this to myself. The zombification is complete. I'm all parts: the host, the carrier, the new victim. <laughs>
2: yeah. Right? how do we we don't want to live like that? what if we have a few years left on this side of eternity we don't want to be all the different characters in Night of the Living Dead or at least I don't so i I always thought I've always heard if you've got a problem go look in the mirror what what could you change I can't change the reality of the politics in Washington I can't change the opinions or beliefs of the people in charge but I can change me you know we're, my problems don't tend to be my problems my my solutions to those tend to be my problem so I started looking at that. Uh,
1: you say something and this resonates you say uh, some of your friends simply uh, you know disconnect try to disconnect reduce the hate I, I guess reduce that divide by simply not watching the news but you, you decide not to do that.
2: Um, I do watch the news. I, I also stay informed, and I also um, march. Uh, I was very encouraged by the um, students at Parkland High when, and, and the revolution they caused in, in people's awareness. And um, um, so I still do all the things that one does if you are politically um, plugged in or interested. But I, I didn't stop watching. The, I watch TV less. I definitely. I bet I watch it half as much. But I'm still sort of addicted, just to be honest.
1: Mm. So if it's not unplugging, um, and you know, if people are just feeling this divide, this hatred, this alienation, what do you do? You you said you had a private hate workshop. What what I happened there? I had a there?
2: private hate workshop, and I realized that um, part of what was going on for me that made it so hard to become the person I really am, which is pretty easygoing and gentle, and I have a lot of faith in God, and I have a precious community of believers. I have a little Sunday school. I have all these things. And then I had this kind of fist of hostility in me, and I decided that me resisting it was making everything worse. And so I decided to just make friends with it and just to say that it was okay for it to be a part of the mix, along with my goodness, along with being a curious person and uh, all the different parts of my identity. I decided to let it be there and not resist it so much. And so I haven't read that in a bit, and I'm on tour, so I'm kind of jet laggy, and also I don't think I've bounced back from being in Denver one mile up, and so (laughs) nothing's coming quite as easily as it used to, but what I remember is saying that I I decided to invite it for tea, the hatred, and to let it come sit down, and to be with it, and to see what it had to teach me, and to see what I had to offer it as kind of a a compromise negotiation, and um and then there's also my belief i wrote about this on facebook the other day that in what my friend david roach um Calls his church of eighty percent sincerity, and he says in this world eighty percent of anything is kind of a miracle. So if you're eighty percent honest, I mean we all want to be all is all is all is honest, and we're not. And if you're eighty percent really un, un uh, self centered, and if you're eighty percent fair and whatnot, and conscious and awake for your life, that's a miracle. So I thought if I could be eighty percent free. Um, I'd take it, you know, dibs <laughs> so um i I did that work i i you know i I said it out loud, you're not supposed to have hatred, and so I said it out loud. It means you're a person without a, a deep spiritual evolution, I guess is the f- belief, and I decided just to tell people and then everyone said, You know what I know exactly what you're talking about, and then um um i I read a lot about about hatred and about healing from it you know and I read people who I thought of all these examples too like at when there was the slaughter of the Sunday, the Bible study at Mother Emanuel a couple years ago the people who survived spoke forgiveness, the congregation spoke forgiveness and when there was that terrible massacre at the Amish school where somebody, one of the Amish men came in and killed a lot of girls, the Amish spoke forgiveness, they invited. invited the shooter's wife to their memorial services because they knew she was in grief, too, and her life was changed for the worse forever, too. And they included her. And those two examples, I think, are just so profound about what grace can do if you um, let it do its sneaky, spiritual WD-40 work on you and unclench you and soften you.
1: And uh, you also uh, write about uh, doing what you can, right? Um, Doing what you can, yeah. um, And I've uh, talking to friends who uh, are, I think, in the same political camp as you and feeling uh, dispossessed. Um, Of course, if you're on the other side, you're you're feeling great and things are moving. But uh, um, if you're in that camp, uh, do what you can, right? Uh, Pick up the litter, um, you know.
2: Pick up the litter. Always, always, always pick up the litter and always serve the poor. And you take the action. I mean, I, I don't think figure it out is a good slogan, and that I don't know how anyone on either side could figure out much of anything. And so I take the action, and then the insight follows that there's always God's work to do here, that there's always... Um, the environment to to try to help in in, uh, in whatever way we can. That there are always the poor amidst us, and that we can show up. At, we have a St. Anthony's dining room um, half about four or five miles away, and we can go there and not be the servers who, of whom you can take pictures, but to be the to be the dishwashers, to be behind the scenes helping poor people get fed, and. Um, you know, and to give people a buck at the intersection when they're begging with their veterans or if their families and to not try to figure out what they're going to do with it and to, even though it might be annoying or they're slowing down traffic, but Jesus doesn't ask the blind man what he's going to be looking at after he heals, after Jesus heals him. He just heals them and blesses them. So I just, there's a lot of actions that I'm aware of that um, help people that are really, really having a hard time. And so, I do those. I re- one of the things I've been doing in the last year is uh, is trying not to overthink it. That um, I think I have a, a you know there's that 20 questions for drinking. There's also the 20 questions for thinking. <laughs> and it says the same things like have you ever missed work because of your thinking? Do you ever think alone? <laughs> you know, do you ever think in secrecy? And so I stopped trying to think about it and figure it out and break some sort of code and I just started doing gentle loving actions and then the insight would follow that this is what I'm here on earth to do.
1: We're speaking with Anne Lamott uh, on the program today, best-selling author of Bird by Bird, uh, Help, Thanks, Well, Hallelujah, Anyway, uh, Traveling Mercies, and many other uh, best-selling books. The latest is Almost Everything, Notes on Hope. Let's take a break, and we come back more with Anne Lamott, more following this break.
0: I love listening to Bullseye when there's someone on whose work I'm familiar with because I always learn something new about them. I'm Jesse Thorne. This week, the insanely talented Paula Pell. She was a writer for Saturday Night Live, 30 Rock, and more. Plus, I'll talk with Ben Edlund, the creator of The Tick, both the comics and the TV shows. That's all on the next Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Saturday afternoon at 1 on Utah Public Radio.
1: Utah Public Radio would like to thank Thompson Premier Lighting and Appliance for sponsoring UPR programming. Find out how you can become a sponsor by emailing debbie.andrew at usu.edu. We would also like to thank our listeners and members. Remember, you can now listen and contribute on our new UPR app.
0: Hi, I'm Steve Williams, host of Jazz Time here on Utah Public Radio. I hope you'll join me Sunday evenings for a journey through the world of jazz music. From ragtime to bop, from Havana to Logan, Utah. Tune in for a bit of history,
1: commentary, the occasional interview, and of course, all that jazz. Jazz time,
0: Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock on Utah Public Radio. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in October of 2018.
1: Thanks for listening to Access Utah. time Tom Williams. Very pleased to have uh, writer Anne Lamott on with us. She's a best-selling author of uh, several books, um, including uh, um, "Operating Instructions," um, which is a uh, book uh, Anne Lamott about uh, the first year of your uh, your child, right?
2: Right. Um, it's the subtitle is "My uh, Journal of My Son's First Year," yeah. and then my son and I. Um, uh, wrote a book five or six years ago called "Some Assembly Required: A Journal of My Son's First Son" because he had a baby when he, he was only nineteen. So we wrote a follow-up to "Operating Instructions." Uh,
1: what's your? I'm curious, just an overall. Uh, I'm guessing your perspective was a bit different uh, <laughs> some years, being grandmother this time and not mother. Between uh, you know, between "Operating Instructions" and "Some Assembly Required."
2: Oh, yeah. Well, you know, there's so many blessings about getting older, and then um, such as that you are not so positive anymore that every single thing you believe is right, and you've just seen so much. You've lost friends, and you've seen people resurrect from absolutely doomed situations, and when you're younger, you don't have that experience because, you know maybe no one has died in your life but by 40 50 they have i'm 64 now and um and what the huge difference between being a grandmother and a mother well the good part is they, the baby they take the baby away at some point <laughs> and um then um the other thing is it turns out the parents of your grandchild have zero interest in your thoughts on things and that in fact if you share anything at all about what the child is eating or his education or his health or his whatever, they recoil, Mm -hmm. and then they might withhold the baby from you. So um, you you have to learn to let go. And with a child, of course, you just are always there. I mean, I was a single mother, and you're just always there, and it's 24-7. And with a grandchild, it's not nearly as intense, but then also – it's not what you think. What you think doesn't apply. So I would say that the book, Some Assembly Required, is really, really about learning to let go, because it's the only way that you get the reward, is that you get to see the baby more.
1: By the way, I love the your your anecdotes about the young people in your life. We've talked about, but about your grandson in this book. You you talk about. Um, I guess you you teach uh, kids in Sunday school.
2: Mm-hmm. I, uh, I do.
1: <laughs> and an eight year old kid, uh, you asked the, the the kids if you if they believed God was always with him, helping him. <laughs> he says maybe forty percent of the time.
2: Hmm. I thought. Well, that's amazing. He's. One of my favorite, we only we, we go to, I go to a really small and failing church with about 35 people left, but full of spirit and love and service. And so my Sunday school is usually three or four kids and all different ages, eight to 18. So um, it's all and they always say the funniest stuff. But yeah, maybe 40 percent. And I thought that's great. And then um, the other line I like from the Sunday school in. Um, in the book almost everything is when I, I want the kids to understand that no matter what they do or think or what they've done in the past, they have value, and they cannot get God to love them less. It's not possible. So I had the two, there were two teenagers and a nine-year-old girl, I think, or seven. And I said to the teenagers, but boys who both had sort of rough skin, I want you to say I have value. Well, they were mortified, you know, and, uh, but they kind of muttered that they had value. And then this girl had a speech impediment because her teeth were absolutely perpendicular to her gums they were so buck and she was too little to get braces yet and she said with enormous enthusiasm she said I have value and then she said it again I have value and I thought wow if I had known that at eight my whole life would have been different I didn't know that I thought you had to earn it and achieve it and people please your way into understanding that you had value but so that's my other favorite story
1: uh by the way you you uh you said that a small failing church and uh, but you give a you give a plug i guess maybe to buck it up at the end so i'll give that plug saint andrew presbyterian church Marin city uh, california services at 11 so
2: I people. always say that in the acknowledgments, <laughs> but no one—I mean, people come, people visit from really all over the country. But that—that that bumps the, the size of the congregation up to like thirty-six.
1: <laughs> there you go.
2: But we, yeah, we love to have them, and they—anybody that comes, we—they we, will be loved out of all sense of proportion. Mm-hmm.
1: I love the uh, the tough love you give to writers. I want to talk a little bit about that, and and it's. I I I found this addressing some things that I've been stuck on. I've you know that the 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 tough words, loving words that do, uh, I'm kind of applying to myself and maybe get myself unstuck. Um, mm-hmm. You said you 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 had a good example. Your father woke at five thirty a.m. Mm-hmm. to he wrote every day.
2: Rain or shine, rain or shine, and what he taught me was that it's a habit, the habit of writing. You don't wait for inspiration. I I never have had much inspiration. Somebody asked once. What's your inspiration? I said debt, <laughs> and uh, this twenty years ago. And the inspiration is, I think, uh, kind of a illusion, a illusion or a theory or something. What you do is you sit down and write, and you keep your bottom in the chair for a certain amount of time, for an hour, say. And um, and if you you know what it's like, if you if you put in an hour, you get about forty minutes of work done then you take a little break and then you put in you set aside another hour as a debt of honor not because you because it's going so well because it really doesn't ever go that well it's hard it's weird there's no one helping you you're all alone and all the critical voices in your head are telling you just how poorly it's going that day but so you write anyway you it's a resistance movement against the critical voices in your head and um My father's title, Bird by Bird, I don't think I shared that yet today, but... um My brother had this report due on birds in California in fourth grade. You write two term. It's the first papers you ever write because third grade is that lined binder paper with half of it being blank for the picture, and then in fourth grade you do research papers. One was supposed to be on birds, so he hadn't started and he was crying. It was due the next day. He'd had the whole semester, and my dad sat down with him and said, "Just take it bird by bird. Take one thing. Take penguins." and write one paragraph about, and read about penguins, and then write one paragraph, and then take chickadees and read about them and write one paragraph in your own words, and that that's how a paper gets written, and that's, in fact, how a book gets written.
1: And you say you're never in the mood to write. It always goes badly, but you do it anyway.
2: Yeah. I do it anyway. This is what I do, and I, I God gave me a gift, and I've gotten better. I've been doing it for full time since I was 19. I dropped out of college to be a writer. I'm 44, so I think that might be 45 years. Wait a minute. I'm 64. So... um I just, I have this habit. I don't ask myself if I'm in the mood I, or if uh, I always have other things I could be doing. I have a grandchild living with me. I have dogs. I have my world of recovery. I have my church. I have hikes. I have real life. But so I, I, I do it by prearrangement with myself. I sit down at the same time every day and that helps my subconscious kick in and uh, you need your subconscious if you're going to write and you need your memories and your visions and your ideas and your imagination and you all sit down together and you write badly for an hour and then you get to take, I you can use bribes and threats like if I do a, an hour then I might get up and have a cup of tea or a, a half of a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and then I put in another hour it's totally a discipline for me and discipline is really the only way I've ever experience any freedom at all.
1: You uh, you tell a funny story about uh, presenting about writing to your grandson's class, right?
2: Yes, I do workshops with my grandson's class every, I mean a number of them, every year. And um, so first they were five-year-olds, now they're nine-year-olds. But so I try to take the whole bird-by-bird book and condense it into really short takes that little ones would understand. You know, but short assignments and let yourself do it badly, bird by bird, just take one tiny scene or one description, one passage that helps us know where this story takes place and then uh write it and then there's gonna be a lot of help. And I write a lot about that in both bird by bird and almost everything that you think if if you're grown-up, you think that you're supposed to write all alone and it's supposed to be miserable, but really there's a lot of help around and that everybody can find somebody that will um, read their work for them and help them make it better and make suggestions about what doesn't work, what does, and then um, you write it again, you know, and, and uh, so, yeah, I love teaching the, the the little ones, but the funny thing is that the first day that I taught my grandson's kindergarten class, all the kids really loved me because one of them told the others that I own the library in town, and so they all think I'm kind of a rock star. There was a poster of me with a Dr. Seuss book and a a huge, huge um, caption above the picture, and it said, read, you know, like in six-inch letters, Mm -hmm. and so they thought I owned the library, so they took me seriously. But afterwards, my grandson, whose name is Jax with an X, came up to me and said, Nana, that was horrible, and I said what? And he said, "You told us you were going to teach us how to write a book, but you only taught us how to write one page." And I said, "Honey, that's all I can teach the ups too." <laughs> yeah,
1: one one bad page. Uh, you've said elsewhere that that's that's all any writer does. It's you know it's it it they they start out with bad pages and then you work on it.
2: Yeah, that's what you do. If you can get a bad draft written. You're home free. The worst part is over. Then you can then you don't have all that awful blank paper staring you down like an unassaulted ice floe. You know you have something. You start taking stuff out. A lot of creativity is taking stuff out, deleting and erasing. And then you can start shifting stuff around. You write something on page 13 that would really be good in the introduction, and your ending's right there on page four in the second paragraph. And you can start moving, and it becomes a little bit more like a Puzzle like Sudoku or whatever that Sudoku, whatever it's called, <laughs> and you move and shift and delete and and add, and then you write a uh, ever so slightly better second draft, and then then it's fun. The third draft, maybe the final draft, is being like a Swiss watchmaker. You know, you're tinkering, you're you're really focused, and you're up up really close sentence by sentence, and maybe by then someone's given your draft to read.
1: Mm. There And it, it's uh, there's a connection to life here. I think this is a metaphor for life, right? You may not yeah. be a writer, but uh, take time for something creative.
2: Yeah, if you're not creating, it's probably—if you're not in co-creation with life and God and your history and— <laughs> it all in capital letters, then there's probably a hole inside of you that is longing to be filled that you might fill with food or compulsive exercise or gambling or being just shut down there because everyone is creative. Everybody in, in high school or college had a great teacher either in art and painting or dance or writing. And when I used to teach writing, um, the students that I had were mostly older, my age or somewhere ten years in either direction they'd all loved to write once and but then they'd had families and and they had gotten really jammed, and their days were super busy and and they were losing this opportunity to do this thing that they had always loved and and been pretty good at and so but then they were always. Um, explaining to me why they couldn't write right then, but how as soon as the last child was out of school or the wife retired or they moved to the Russian River, they were, and I said, you know what, you're just tricking yourself. If you're not writing now, you won't be writing then. There's no then. There's only then, there's only now. So th- what do we, they'd say, what do we do, what do we do? I said, give me an hour. Find an hour you'll give to me to commit to writing. Give up the 10 o'clock news, you know. I always say the only people who need – to watch the 10 o'clock news are, are the wives of firefighters. But so and all, they go to the gym four days a week. I'd say, can you go three? They'd say, no, it makes me feel good. I'd say, I can't help you. You're not going to get your writing done.
1: Hmm. Uh, and uh, you uh, you have said, um, uh, you know, when you say this to them, they, they say back to you or they look at you like, well, you don't understand. But you, but you go on to say, I do. I, I know how addictive busyness and mania are. That's yeah. what you say. This is addiction to busyness and mania.
2: Yeah, and then also one thing that comes up and that that saves them is that they bond. You know, they're all in the same boat. They're all wishing they could get published. They're all finding it really hard to do the writing at all. They're um, discouraged or they have raging egos, and they just can't believe that they're not on scheduled to be on Oprah next week. And so they're all in the same boat, and they bond, and then they form these really small writing groups of three or four people. And I never pushed it until I started to see that they were still together years and years later, and the rule was that you might meet I'm making this up at every two every second Thursday at a little independent bookstore somewhere to for tea and pastry and you had to bring five finished pages. You had to have gotten it to them before that day and um and they should be marked up. And so it really kept people honest, you ha- accountable, you had to show up with pages. So they did.
1: On the other side, you say in the book you uh, you have friends who are unpublished novelists who keep endlessly working on their novels, uh, and I thought I knew the ending to that paragraph that <laughs> it's going to be kind of sad. You say no, it's fulfilling. They love it because it's
0: fulfilling yeah. to them.
2: Yeah, it's really tr- it's very hard to make a living. I didn't make a living till. After my fifth book, my fifth book was Operating Instructions. I'd written four novels before. Operating Instructions I was about, I think it was 38, and that was when I first even had to start filing taxes I made so little money. And I mean, I always checked in to see if I filed, but I didn't have to pay taxes or or anything cause I mean, and I but I was willing to do it because I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to be a reader and a writer. And if you're going to be a writer, it means you have to be a reader. And and uh, and so I wanted it so badly that I was willing to do whatever it took. I taught tennis and I cleaned houses to make a, a what what a living in air quotes. And mostly people don't get published. Mostly they don't get advances. I got seventy five hundred, I believe, for the first four books, and that was ten years of my eight years of my writing life. And so. Um, but, you know, some of my students, I remember, oh, my gosh, just 20 years ago that um, a woman came to me in my class, and she said, I got an offer this week from Random House for my book. It's 7500 and I'm not going to take it. I mean, I think I can get a lot more. I said, I can't help you. You know, I mean, seize it, leap at it, work your way up. But, you know, the culture is so crazy of, and giving people this idea of how much they should, quote unquote, be making or could be making. And, um, and if you want to be a writer or a painter or an artist of any kind or a dancer or singer, you just do whatever you can to have that be a part of your life because that is where the fulfillment is going to come. The publication makes people much worse than they already were in terms of raging broken ego and bad self-esteem. So, But the writing, the dancing, the singing is where where we fill up and where we feel that we're fulfilling our, um, our, our, de- our destinies.
1: Let's take another break. We'll come back with another segment okay. with uh, Anne Lamott uh, and um, some great advice there, not only, you know, for writing, but uh, whatever your creative spark is. Uh, the, the book is Almost Everything, Notes on Hope. Anne Lamott is the New York Times bestselling author of several books. This is the latest. More following this break.
0: I'm Stephen Dubner. on the next Freakonomics Radio, how to turn a good idea into reality. It's not as though you have an idea and tomorrow you write a paper and you submit it to the journal and it's done. I'm the kind of inventor that's looking to make whatever amount of time we have in this world better. And so execution has always been part of it. When a good idea is not enough, that's next time on Freakonomics Radio. That's tomorrow morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Utah Public Radio is part of something that has never happened before. UPR is one of six NPR member stations chosen by StoryCorps for a new project they've been working on. StoryCorps has been curating conversations between loved ones for years. Now they are attempting to put strangers together, folks who are on the opposite side of the political aisle, to have a conversation. The project is called One Small Step. We will be traveling around the state of Utah collecting these conversations with the hope of having people realize that we have much more in common than we think we do. We are looking for people who are willing to participate, people who are interested in talking with a stranger who, at first, may seem like they have nothing in common. Is this something you'd be interested in? We hope you consider participating. Anybody is welcome. Just go to upr.org and click on the One Small Step link. That will take you to a page with information, examples of these kind of conversations, and most importantly, a questionnaire all hopeful participants will need to fill out. Again, go to upr.org and click on the One Small Step link. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in October of 2018.
1: Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is Anne Lamott. Uh, Her latest book is called Almost Everything, Notes on Hope. She's a New York Times bestselling author of several books, and uh, this is the latest. We're glad to have her with us uh, for the hour. Anne Lamott, I love uh, Chapter 7. It's one page. A bitter truth, chocolate with 81% cacao is not actually a food.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I know. I mean, there's so much pressure to get these intensely high cacao chocolates. I just don't get it. I said that th- those chocolate bars are really good for um, to use as shims if you're in a restaurant and your table's <laughs> wobbly instead of a matchbook, or they're good in snake traps. But um, I just I love... Um, milk chocolate, and ever so slightly dark chocolate. <laughs> I don't buy it. Uh, anyway, uh, and I, hey, under- I wanted to ask you, yeah, if the people are, do you think the people in Utah are more for the Dodgers or the Brewers?
1: Uh, well, if I had to guess, I would guess the Dodgers. Because they're closer, proximity, yeah. Proximity, I'd just guess, Yeah. My, I, I know my dad was a big Cubs fan, and he never did get to see them uh, win the World Series. But uh, that happened after he died. But, uh, oh,
2: Boston! I didn't mean Brewers. I yeah. meant Boston and Dodger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay.
1: I, I would, I would think, I would think the Dodgers probably. Okay. What, which one do you root for?
2: Well, I was raised to hate the Dodgers. Using the word "hate" again, but um, all San Francisco Giants children were raised that thinking that Dodgers were the mortal enemy. So
1: yeah, so uh, I come
2: by it honestly.
1: You're going to root for the American League team.
2: I'm not going to root, I just yeah. um I, well I'm on you know I'm doing readings and everything every night, so i don't I don't get to watch it, but i yeah, I always secretly hope for the Dodgers to do poorly <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah I, I kind of had the same thing about the Yankees i just uh yeah when when yeah. they well, when they fail, the I feel good too
2: see yeah. we always were raised to hate the Yankees and the dodgers,
1: yeah uh so on the on the very dark chocolate, that kind of gets into um I think there was some peer pressure in certain circles.
2: I you, think there you, is, too. You've got to get the really dark chocolate. If you eat chocolate. extremely dark chocolate, you're thought to be a better person. Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah. And so you're just casting that off. You're saying, hey, I'm, I don't care if you judge me.
2: No, I said that you should all—it's really okay if you like Hershey's Kisses, which I do, and that you should always carry them in your backpack to give away because um, people will like you more if you give them Hershey's Kisses. <laughs> Everyone loves Hershey's Kisses. <laughs> There's another one-sentence um, chapter in the book I'm just going to quote right now, um, which is that everything will work better and work again if you unplug it for a few minutes, including you.
1: So wh- what do you mean by that? Uh, how, do we, how do we unplug me?
2: Well, the way I unplug is to get away from the phone to get away from the electronic world, and to go somewhere and to be quiet. There's that wonderful line of T.S. Eliot's of teach me to care, teach me not to care, teach me to sit still. So I sit still, or I sit outside with my dog, or I go outside and look at my fiance's garden, or I just break the trance of being plugged in and thinking that the details of my life and, and what I have to do are so important. So that's how I unplug. Uh, sometimes I'll go and visit somebody that's in a home or who's not doing very well, and I'll, um, I just break the trance of self-obsessed delusion that all the stuff that I do is really very important in the scheme of things.
1: I want to talk a little bit about uh, connections. Maybe you know you unplug, and then you connect back in. But the real connections, the the, the healthy connections, are with people, right? Right. Um, I wonder if you tell me a little bit about your friend Bonnie. She's been a mentor, you say, for three decades now.
2: And... Yep, she's been my spiritual mentor for three day three decades. And I always kind of jokingly call her Horrible Bonnie because no matter what awful shape I'm in and how crazy I'm feeling or acting, she just always says, Oh, dearest, I'm so glad you called. And then I'll rant about whatever, whoever I think has crossed me or what's going wrong or whatever. And then she'll say, "You know, that person isn't doing anything to you. They're not your problem. You know, we got to look in the mirror and see why you're reacting in such a self-righteous or judgmental way." And she never. Ever gives up on hope and goodness, no matter what the most dire extreme times in our history together. She never gives up on on hope and on grace batting last and um, so um, I'm very I I'm just so so grateful for her presence in my life.
1: Yeah, a, a great example. Um, I want to talk a little bit about you and you share this openly and have done in uh, several places including this book. Your urge to jump.
2: Oh, yeah. I think this book is the first time I ever wrote about it. Oh, it's the first time. Okay. I think so. Um, but I always, as a small child, would notice, like we live right on the other side of the Golden Gate Bridge, so we were all often on the bridge, and you could be in traffic, and you'd be stopped. We had a uh, build, our dentist was at the 14th floor of the 450 Setter Building in San Francisco. We had these places where I'd be very high up, and I would notice from a pretty young age that I was considering jumping, and I don't have clinical depression. I, I have a lot of anxiety, but not depression. And um, and it was so puzzling. It was so embarrassing. I mean, I just never mentioned it to anybody. I thought, they, of course, they would worry. So um, then um, about maybe 15 years ago, I mentioned it to a, a therapist, and we made a deal. He said... Um, he said, it's for people like me that are very sensitive and sort of highly strung, it's really exhausting here on this side of eternity, and it might just be a way for me to imagine taking a break from it all. So he said, I want you to promise me that whenever you're really high up and you're having this thought that you'll tell whoever you're with, whether you're on the bridge or on the mountain or on, in a high building, and... um So in the book, I tell the story of being—I went to Cairo to give some uh, lecture and a couple sermons in Mahdi, which is right outside Cairo, and the minister that was hosting me took me up to this very, very high place outside of Cairo, and a cliff, (laughs) and I said to him, okay, I I made a promise to my therapist that whenever I'm really, really high up, I start to think about jumping. I'm not going to, but I'm supposed to tell you, and he said, oh, who doesn't? And it (laughs) really tricked the sting out of it all. I never was really worried about it again. I thought it was so funny. And then when I started telling people that story, everyone said, oh, I always thought about jumping. You know, I couldn't be, uh, because when I was coming up in the 50s and 60s, windows opened in in skyscrapers and what we used to think of as skyscrapers, which now were maybe like 18 stories high. But um, usually for me, If I say something out loud, if I tell another person, a person who's safe, they'll say, oh, I've been, oh, I do that too. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I used to do that. Oh, I did that yesterday. And then there's no, uh, like, pressure around it. You know, there's no um, feeling of shame or secrecy around it. You just laugh. And I've always said that laughter is carbonated holiness. And so you get a little bit of healing when you share about it and laugh about it.
1: I guess it's that connection, the feeling that you're not alone with this. Yep.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Um, w- one of your points is that you say everyone's screwed up, broken, clingy, or scared, even the people that seem to have it most together. And that's hard to believe sometimes when you see people that apparently are very, have it together.
2: Yeah, that's right, yeah.
1: Um, but but I guess if you open up, maybe they'll open up too. And you well, can, you can or connect, also
2: yeah. if you become a person who's... Um, Known to be comfortable with intimacy or or scary thoughts. There's a whole chapter on death in this book, because I had so much death in my. um, When you know, my dad died when I was in my early 20s. My best friend died of uh, when when she and I were both 37, and and I've just gotten to be somebody who doesn't fear it. I mean. I mean, I'm a Christian, so I don't fear. I, I I believe that the soul is immortal, but I um I just don't fear it so much. So so when I would write about that, people would feel confident to share their fear or their lingering fear or their confusion about that. So I think that becoming a person who is is comfortable with really un, um, uh, uncomfortable stuff. Um, has um, given a lot of people license to share stuff with me. And so you know, I, I write about pretty personal stuff, but I don't write about it unless I know it's universal. So I don't like say stuff about myself that'll be shocking to um, definitely not to the women who read it because we all have the same fears, we all have, thought- same anxieties. That's what I wanted to convey to my niece and and, um, grandson in almost everything was that we're all pretty much in the same boat. Don't compare your insides to other people's outsides because if you get to know them, even if they look perfect or they seem to have a perfect marriage or family, um, they're just like you. They worry about the same stuff. They lose confidence. They don't really secretly have a lot of self-esteem, whatever. So, yeah, I think it's amazing to just be able to tell uh, at least a few really, really safe people your secrets because there's that old saying that we're only as sick as our secrets, and I really believe that to be true. So somebody knows everything, but... You know, I spread it around.
1: Yeah, spread it around. Yeah. yeah. Uh, as you share the really close stuff with trusted people, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about uh, when you have a chapter on families, you titled it "Families" with a B. Yeah. That's uh, what
2: we always called it. I think it was from the 50s, but my dad all, and his friends always jokingly called it Famblies.
1: And you say, um, life, Earth is a forgiveness school, and families are the are the postdoc
2: families as a postdoc, and I said, you're going to have to do this work on trying to love and forgive everyone, and that starts with yourself, and the self-forgiveness is the hardest, hardest work we do, and then the next hardest is forgiving your families and to make some sort of peace with your families, and I said, you have to do the work anyway, so you might as well do it around the holiday dinner table when you can at least be wearing comfortable pants.
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> Um it goes I think some families are having problems with this political divide. M- might even yeah. get into, yeah. you know, shouting matches and and maybe even verging on hatred. How do how do we yeah. bridge that?
2: Well, I think everybody's got the uncle at the holiday table that uh, that believes exactly the opposite of what what you believe, whichever side of the aisle you're on. Um and so i think that with time you learn ways to um not buy into it not to get it not you know my Mad Uncle is not going to convince me of anything. He's a hundred percent sure he's right. I'm not going to convince him of anything, and so it's not just not talking about it. I don't try to control him, but I nod pleasantly, or I say I say one of three things. I say, "Huh," or I say, "Ah," or I say, "That's an interesting idea." And if I ever say that to you, you know that it means I think you're just crazy. <laughs> if I were to say, "Huh, that's an interesting idea," it means uh, whatever. <laughs> but so I don't. I don't cause unpleasantness. I don't cause um, bad feelings. I I love my uncle. I completely love my uncle, and I don't need to have discussions about. Um, Politics with him because it makes us both crazy. It makes me crazy, and it seems to make him feel really, really puffed up and and uh, and thrilled and right, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, th- I know that people ask the question sometimes: Would you rather be right or happy? And I would definitely rather be happy.
1: It, I'm remembering there's the a story you tell about your aunt Janet, um, uh-huh. and and it, it it applies here. I think that that. Um, um you know the healing, helpful healing um harmony can mm-hmm. can literally she believed literally was saving her life when she was battling cancer
2: yeah she was battling the really the most deadly kind of cancer which is called inflammatory breast cancer and when back in the day this is 40 years ago um there really people really didn't Molly Ivins had it for 7 years and one out of something like four women will be alive at the end of a year so um but Janet was very Jewish and very very spiritual and had this kind of wild ecumenical spirituality and faith and she had a really loving husband named Ray and he's still in our lives and um And she just believed that love would heal her and that she was filled with divine love and surrounded by divine love, and so she was going to do everything the doctor said and then everything else that was available for her. So she learned to do this healing meditation. She ate a certain way, and she lived for seven years, and she line danced a month before she died. She and her husband Ray went out and did cowboy line dancing, so... I was writing that in a passage about miracles because I, the people, the we have a lot of very old ladies from the deep south at our church and uh, from the Great Migration, and there was a shipyard right in the county, in the area where the my church is a very impoverished part of our county, and um, a lot of people came to work in the Navy shipyards, and they got they were number of them were diagnosed with untreatable cancers and uh, doctors refusing to do surgery, and they said, oh, you really need to, because I'm not going anywhere, and they just lived and lived and lived. Mm. (laughs) They lived for years, yeah.
1: I want to get this in before the end of the program. We just have about a minute and a half. Uh, This is sent in from Phil. uh, Phil Waite in Logan sent this in. He says, uh, one of Ann's comments that has become apocryphal with my family and me is from a story she tells of her young son's adjustment to their new home how he scooched along the floor each night, slowly progressing from her room to his. Whenever one of us is struggling, we just say to each other, keep scooching. I'll be uh, picking her uh, up her new book soon, says Phil in uh, Logan. Oh, Thanks for that, Phil. Thank
2: you. Yeah, thank you. My uh, therapist of mine always said, "Only go as fast as the slowest part of you can go." You know, you. And I remember my my son when he was little. He he was so afraid of the dark, and he he was ashamed because he was a big boy. He was like seven, but so he started off on my bed and then, um, on the floor by my bed. And every night he'd move four or five feet <laughs> closer to the bedroom door. And then a few feet down the hall, a few feet down the hall, and then a few feet into the living room, all the way to his spooky own bedroom.
1: (laughs) Well, we'll have to leave it there. We're out of time. Um, Read the book, Almost Everything Notes on Hope, is the latest from New York Times best-selling author Anne Lamott, who has joined us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much.
2: Oh, thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking to you, and I really love Utah.
1: Well, we hope to have you back here uh, soon. Okay. Have a good day. You, you too. Thank you so much. And okay. thanks, uh, thanks for listening to Access Utah. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities
0: and Social Sciences. This is KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, and heard online at UPR.org. Next time on Ask Me Another, we're joined by comedian and master impressionist Jay Farrow, who gives us his best impersonations. Ah, well, generations of Americans have responded with a simple creed: Yes, we can. So join me, Ophira Eisenberg, on Ask Me Another, the answer to life's funnier questions. Saturday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio.